In August 1902, the poet, the German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, folded his clothes and arranged them into an immaculate constellation in his suitcase, preparing to leave behind his wife and a small child to embark on a quest not merely to write, but to sort of understand how an artist should be. And maybe not just an artist, but to understand how he as a young man should take whatever was best within him, was the finest portion, in a way, of his soul, and manifest that into the world. And at some level, whether we are artists or not, we are all on that path of trying to see how we can take the life force within us and bring it into the world in a way that is fulfilling for us and also maybe useful or interesting or meaningful or helpful to others. Rilke was traveling to Moudon, which was 20 minutes southwest of Paris by train, because he had managed to convince Rodin, um, being a kind of a fan of his work, that um, he wanted to do some writing. He wanted to kind of do, I guess, what kind of modern documentary makers nowadays do, sort of hang out with this great older man, this very well-established and um, very impressive and um, uh, artist who had a, also a great deal of status, uh, to hang out with him and, and write about him, write about his work. Um, and this is what he did. He eventually wrote uh, a very interesting monograph um, on Rodin which is also well worth reading because it's such a a beautiful um, appreciation of Rodin and it also expresses so much of Rilke in it. So he arrived at Rodin's country estate and was invited in. And um, we are told in uh, Rachel Corbett's uh, wonderful book, which... Uh, explores the relationship between Rilke and also the two paths of these, um, in some way, artists who had some uh, essential connection but also worked in very different genres and I think also came uh, had a, a core, f- fundamentally quite core, different personality types. I think Rodin is something of a of an eight, and Rilke is more in the sort of the four, four with a five wing, something like that, and. So Rilke the Four was invited into these sort of sparsely furnished rooms, which reminded him of Tolstoy's austere home in Russia because Rilke had also visited Tolstoy a little bit before. There was no gas or electricity. Rodin did not hang paintings on the downstairs walls, um, you know, in order mainly to focus on the view out of the windows. Um, The only decorations Rodin had were his antiques, uh, a growing collection of terracotta vases, classical Greek nudes, Etruscan artifacts, and broken Roman Venuses. Rodin believed that cushions were indulgent. I do not approve of half going to bed at all moments of the day, uh, is what he would have told um, his visitor. And the other thing that Rilke picked up and became a kind of North Star, uh, a guiding mantra for his life, was when Rodin... um, 
gave him one of his guiding mantras, I guess. And this mantra was, is, travailler, toujours travailler. Work, always work. This is what Rodin, this is what the sort of the great man um, uh, fundamentally, I think, imparted to this younger man who felt in him a great desire felt in himself a great desire to work, a great desire to um, bring the best of himself into the world, um, but was maybe caught up in the usual um, doubts and prevarications that we are all in some way beset with. And this kind of type eight injunction, and I think it is very type eight, it's like, okay, find, find it, find, find your desire, find what is really core, find something that's in your belly, some some fire in your belly, whatever that fire is, towards something, and then work, always work, um, really pour yourself into this. And Rodin told Rilke that this is what he had devoted his youth to, um, but of course it was not enough to just make work, um, the word which was the word that Rodin actually preferred to art. Rodin never talked about making art. Rodin talked about work. But you also had to kind of live it, right? And that meant sort of renouncing the trappings in some way of earthly pleasures. Not that Rodin did um, fully, but nice idea. But it's more of a sort of setting up a kind of perspective, renouncing the trappings of earthly pleasures like fine wine, sedating sofas, you know, even one's own children, um, which, of course, Rodin as a, you know, early 20th century uh, a patriarchal figure was able to do uh, more so than perhaps, thankfully, we're, we're, we, we might allow ourselves to do nowadays um, and really just focus on whatever was um, our core life pursuit. A hundred years later, um, after this uh, important meeting for both individuals, Rilke and Rodin. We are now, of course, completely um, uh, overwhelmed by shelves and shelves of books telling us how we should bring the best of ourselves forth into the world, how we should make our best work, and what are the um, useful habits to employ when this is um, when we feel like we're uh, not doing that, which, again, for our kind of hyperactive, hyperproductive culture, um, this is a, a form of guilt that we, that we all carry maybe most of the time. The problem is that a lot of this advice on how to get things done is sort of, well, borderline useless <laughs> because, the, you know, we're, we're very rarely in the right frame of mind to apply the wise and the sage advice. Um, although this is where I think that uh, travailler, toujours travailler, maybe, you know, TTT, maybe that is at least um, one fundamental which we can cling on to, but how to cling on to this, right? Because 
either life is kind of going well, in which case we're trundling happily through our projects, making steady progress, you know, with no particular need for complex new productivity systems or schemes for accomplishing our goals, or else, and this happens perhaps a little more frequently than we care to admit, you know, it's it's a so-called bad day. I'm feeling listless or miserable, and the trouble then is motivating myself to do anything constructive at all. And on those days, the idea of implementing any sort of productivity system or planning philosophy or anything similar, um, again, depending on your type, but this is just feels like wildly, preposterously overambitious. You know, um, I guess at those points we are stuck in a kind of rut um, and, you know, the only thing that I need to find at that point is just how do I get out of the rut? Um, and this is perhaps where that travailler, toujours travailler, um, opens up a little portal. But let's look at what um, that portal might actually look like. So another quote here, of course, is good old Joan Baez, where she says that, you know, action is the antidote to despair. And is this not true, even though this is often quoted in the context of political or environmental activism, it really applies to everything, right? Uh, An overfilled inbox, a cluttered garage, an intimidating creative project or overdue tax return. If we can sort of get ourselves over the gap between knowing what we need to do and actually doing something, um, things can only get better from there which means that at least the nature of the immediate challenge is clear, which is not to become more productive or to get motivated or to make a plan or something like that, but just to do one thing, to address whatever situation we're in, which maybe helps to explain a kind of of absurdly simple tactic, which uh, I've picked up from Oliver Berkman, which is to grab a piece of paper, write down one action that we could take uh, right now, do it, and then cross it out, and then write another action on the line underneath, and so on. And then by sort of radically narrowing, you could say, uh, the time horizon, focusing only on the very next thing we intend to do, in some way we get to then sidestep that intimidating psychological weight of the project or the challenge as a whole. And we kind of maybe cross the Rubicon, which is really all we need to do from inactivity to action at last. Another way of thinking uh, of this is just asking ourselves, you know, is there one thing that exists in the disarray of my life at this moment, in my situation, that could and would sort of set it straight if I just, just, you know, had a go at it? Um, Could I and would I Uh, perhaps just set myself on course to fix that one thing and um, and see what happens could I do it now it's noteworthy that framing the challenge of action in this way focusing on one thing that we could and would do um, and should do um, or will do if if we make it more like right I'm floundering put this down do this. This differs subtly um, from that cliched kind of management tip that you should just like break a big project down into small chunks, etc., etc. Because thinking in these terms still places the big project 
which is that intimidating or repellent thing, you know, kind of front and center, it's still ultimately a matter of trying to force or trick ourselves, if we're following that line, into working on something we'd rather not be doing. Whereas zeroing in on a single action with that kind of Rodan mantra in our minds, well, you know, work always work. It's better to be moving. It's better to be in action than out of action, particularly if out of action means kind of stewing and um, a, a sort of form of inner recrimination for being out of action. Um, so this kind of zeroing in on a single action can have a way of bringing into our awareness at least one little task that we wouldn't mind we wouldn't mind doing maybe and and that's all we ever really need to just get on with that maybe a good analogy here is how we can get into a bit of a kerfuffle when it comes to um, meditation practice or those forms of practice where we're not um, immediately and in a very concrete way kind of stimulating our minds where we are really having to deal with just ourselves in our raw uncooked state and um, you know very often (laughs) what happens is we try to follow our breath or whatever it is for 20 minutes but we realize quite quickly that we're getting distracted and um, and we can get frustrated with that or we can get bored or, you know, whatever our reaction is to the thing we're trying to do, which we're not doing very well, that's then the reaction that um, shifts us from the activity that we really, really want to be involved in or involved with in some way. So, you know, again, maybe the focus should be more on just trying to be with that breath for uh, you know, for a bit. And and then once we've managed that, just remain where we are, sort of, you know, take a short break from that focus and then try again. And as we continue to focus in these sort of short stretches, you know, just doing that, just doing that one thing, that that one next thing, um, maybe we we need less of a break between the sort of getting ready to focus again and the actual focusing. Uh, again, it's looking at this more from a kind of sense of creating these kind of micro-sessions, these micro-sessions of focus, these micro-sessions of action, um, which are not massively difficult to do. I mean, this, the idea of sitting down and recording this um, came to me when I was talking to a client earlier and we were sort of talking about this. And I thought, OK, well, it might be good to put that idea and that idea together. And instead of turning this into a whole big chore, well, grab the microphone and actually just do that. And it doesn't take long or too long anyway before we are then achieving a few seconds of what we were trying to achieve, which is this kind of focus, right? Um, where and where the meditation or the work, whatever work we're engaged in, sort of becomes this experience of repeatedly succeeding, at least repeatedly succeeding in getting something out, getting some of our life force into the world rather than repeatedly failing. And that, of course, can then change so much. And I guess that's maybe the goal (laughs) in some way is kind of approaching our daily life like this, you know, as a kind of sequence of momentary self-contained but hopefully very doable actions rather than as a kind of arduous matter of chipping away at at enormous challenges um, 
because who knows, we, we might even notice something fairly profound when we are shifting our perspective in, in, in this way. And that is that this is maybe all we ever need to do. Um, we're back to that old chestnut of, well, if we're actually just present and if we are um, have a sense of what is the next meaningful action that I can take um, and then giving our heart and soul to that, well, guess what? Um, a lot of a lot of stuff gets done, and we are in flow, and um, life can feel potentially um, fairly good. In a way, there is no achievement in the history of human civilization that has ever been really accomplished by any other means than just a sequence of small, doable actions. Um, you know, the classic example, I guess, is just building a wall. Uh, right? There needs to be bricks. There needs to be concrete. But then it's just a case of putting that one brick in and and putting in the concrete and putting in the next brick and and before you know it there is a house there is a cathedral there is something out there which we have contributed to in a small way so it's not really then the question of of, of breaking big projects down into small chunks it's more a matter of seeing then that the big projects are maybe nothing but you know, in some strange way, just sort of psychological constructs, these kind of quasi-illusory entities summoned into existence by taking a particular view of what our lives really consist of, um, rather than recognizing that what they, what they actually consist of is moments and actions that unfold in them. And I think it's quite hard to make that shift. But I guess one way of doing so is to catch ourselves when we're kind of thinking, oh, right, God, I'm not working on that big project or I'm not addressing this major challenge or whatever the case may be. And instead, it's more just like, OK, uh, you know, travailler, toujours travailler. Um, uh, so what's the next action? And then the, and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one.